0: Music has been an integral part of cinema since the so-called silent era. Back then, it was provided mostly by pianists seated beside the screen who would quickly improvise to whatever images were being played out by the flickering projector. And because cinema was such a new storytelling medium, perhaps it could only be expected that those pianists borrowed from well-known music. But when any large-scale production was undertaken, a corresponding score would be commissioned from composers already established as amongst the world's greats. In France, Camille Sanson. In Russia, Mikhail ippolitov Ivanov. And in America, Joseph Carl Braille. All had their works performed in their nation's most prominent concert halls, which may explain why today there really are only two types of music in cinema. Original commission scores and extant music appropriated for the film. Released in 2008, Ari Fulman's Oscar-nominated animated documentary *Walter Bashir takes its name from a moment when late in the film, a unit of the Israeli Defence Force, find themselves pinned down by sniper fire in West Beirut. Israel had invaded Lebanon in June 1982 as an effort to uproot and disband the Palestinian Liberation Organisation. And with most of the fighting taking place in urban areas, the Israeli unit has practically been immobilised by sniper fire. Then, suddenly a member of the IDF platoon, Schmuel Frankel, takes up a general-purpose machine gun and, shooting indiscriminately in every direction, figuratively dances his way across the highway. As bizarre as Frankel's action is, Fullman then plays Chopin's waltz in C-sharp minor over the images. Juxtaposing classical or already existing music to battle scenes is not new. We can go back as far as 1915 to D. W. Griffith's dynamic but obnoxious The Birth of a Nation. Even though Griffith had commissioned Joseph Carl Braille to compose the score, they both agreed that for the sequence where the Ku Klux Klan come riding to the rescue, it would be best if Braille stepped aside and the strains of Richard Wagner's The Ride of the Valkyrie be used instead. Neither Griffith nor Braille saw any problem with invoking a composer infamous for his anti-Semitism and using his music to accompany the charge of rabid supremacists. However distasteful the film, it did have an enormous impact and of course, it is not the last time the Valkyrie has been heard in cinemas. In 1979, Francis Ford Coppola deployed it in Apocalypse Now. However, Coppola distanced himself from Griffith's use of it by having the music come from within the scene with Colonel Kilgore, played by Robert Duvall, insisting his air cavalry unit blasted from their speakers as they mounted a dawn raid on a Vietnamese village. In that way, Coppola avoided any charges of supremacy and instead used the music to implicate his film in his own critique of the war. Elsewhere in the film, Coppola used songs from the mid and late 1960s, specifically The Doors, to relate the experiences of US soldiers in Vietnam. It was so effective that by the time Oliver Stone filmed platoon in 1986, the use of popular music from the era was all but expected. But while for many soldiers The Doors had been the single unified music that typified their experiences, Stone was careful to mark out the divisions within his platoon by having the idealistic members tune out to Smokey Robinson's Tracks of My Tears. <laughs> While over in the other tent, the tough, cynical soldiers drink hard liquor and sing along to Merle Haggard's Oki from Muskogee. We don't smoke marijuana in Muskogee. We don't take our trips on LSD. We don't burn our draft carts down on Main Street We like living right, being free But, sincere as it may have been intended, Stone interlaced the entire soundtrack to mawkish effect with Samuel Barber's Adagio for Strings. Once upon a time, and no matter what time the conflict took place, this is the sort of thing we could expect to hear on every soundtrack to every war picture. In fact, that very piece is what Stanley Kubrick used for his 1964 satire, Dr. Strangelove, which ended with the nuclear apocalypse all played out to the serene serenade of Vera Lynn. Of course, Kubrick continued such juxtapositions in The Clockwork Orange, which begs the question, at what point does mixing images of violence and carnage with dulcet tones stop being insightful, and become a hoary cliché. Kinchi Fukusaku's Battle Royale isn't set during any war, but surely juxtaposing Franz Schubert's to be sung on the water with the images of slaughter is no longer ironic, but meaningless pastiche. While initially the application of such music was startling, it has long since become so familiar that it all but contradicts the original intention. Instead of offering an ironic commentary, it now glamorizes, if not aestheticizes the violence. It turns every fight into a ballet, every explosion into a blossoming flower, every spurt of blood into whatever else is supposed to flow that is not blood. Worst of all, the technique diminishes whatever is being depicted to the point of banality. So, why did Fullman use Chopin's waltz and run the risk of demoting his otherwise high calibre film to the ranks of boilerplate mediocrity? After all, it's not the only pre existing music Fullman used in the film. Enola Gay by OMD is a particularly poignant example because it is about the dropping of the atomic bomb on Hiroshima. you have the vulgar, but at least self-critiquing Beirut, which, ironic to begin with, was sardonically appropriated by Zaev from I-bomb Korea by Cake. <laughs> But why Chopin? Why music at all? To answer that, I think we need to know that Fulman made the film in the first place as a form of therapy. Here he is in the documentary, talking with post-trauma expert Professor Zahava Solomon, who was then Head of Research in Mental Health with the IDF. We call them dissociative events. It's when a person experiences a situation and yet they perceive themselves as outside of it. In 1983, I had a patient who was a photographer and I asked him, how did you survive that grueling war? He replied simple, I saw it as nothing more than a day trip. He told himself, wow, what fantastic action scenes, shooting, artillery, wounded people screaming everywhere. He saw everything as if he were viewing it through an imaginary camera. By aestheticizing that to which he was bearing witness, the photographer was, intentionally or not, buffering himself from the horror. But then his camera broke. With his psychological protection stripped away, he collapsed. So perhaps by using Chopin's walls, Fulman was trying to reassert his own psychological protection to the events he himself had witnessed. Psychologists have found that music is an extremely effective way of treating such trauma. Here is Professor Kathleen Howland of Boston's Berkeley College of Music addressing TED Talks in 2015. What we know from neuroscience is that music and speech have shared networks in the brain. And what's fascinating to me is that when speech goes down because of a stroke, the music remains. We also know that there are structures in the brain that are key to communication that are thicker in singers than in instrumentalists or non-musicians. And therefore, therapeutic singing could help build up this circuitry by which speech can be re-engaged. In the two decades that followed the First Lebanese War, Fulman and several members of his troop experienced post-traumatic stress disorder, most of which was brought on by their having been party to the Sabra and Shatila massacre. On September 16, 1982, over 2,000 Palestinian and Lebanese Shiite men, women and children were murdered by Christian Falange militants. Although Fulman and his unit were not directly involved in the murders, the IDF had received orders to pull their troops back from the Sabra and Shatila refugee camps, thus allowing the Falange militants to enter. And then, as darkness fell, Fulman's and other units were requested to pepper the night sky with flares to provide illumination. Here is Fulman upon the release of the film, being interviewed by Variety magazine. A lot of people thought that the massacre was done by Israeli troops. And suddenly they see for the first time in that film that it was done by the phalangist Christian regime. And I mean, Israeli government understood very quickly and cleverly that this propaganda can't be bought with money. Yes, the IDF did not fire the shots. But the following year, a UN commission found that Israeli authorities bore overall responsibility for what the commission defined as an act of genocide which suggests that Folman made his film to help his country deal with the trauma that they could have been party to a war crime the thing is that just like cystic fibrosis alzheimer's and bipolar disorder trauma can also be inherited Folman's own parents were holocaust survivors having been condemned to auschwitz the day after they were married in Vodge, poland in the 1950s they settled in israel where Fullman was born in 1962. Like so many of the generation born to survivors of the Holocaust, for years the parents never spoke to their children of their experiences. But the children still inherited the trauma through their parents' behaviour. This is what psychiatrists call epigenetic trauma. We are all the results of both nature and nurture, and so it only follows that our environment plays a crucial factor in our development from infancy into childhood, and childhood into adulthood. Many films have addressed trauma, and in many different ways. In Blue, the first of Krzysztof Koszlowski's Colors trilogy, a widow puts the memory of her husband and daughter to rest by helping complete his unfinished symphony. Adam McGowan's adaptation of Russell Banks' The Sweet Hereafter pours over and then picks apart a small community's grief. And in Joshua Oppenheimer's documentary, The Act of Killing, he invited perpetrators of the genocide committed in 1960s Indonesia to reenact their crimes. But one of the first, and still one of the most profound examples, is Alan René's Hiroshima Mon Amour. Two lovers, a French woman and a Japanese man, tried to extricate themselves and each other from the atrocities of the Nazi occupation of France and America’s dropping of the atomic bomb on the Japanese city. What made Rene’s film so unique was not only the subject matter, but the new cinematic vocabulary and grammar he used to explore the phenomenon. Telling the story in truncated flashbacks, the events are revealed piecemeal so the audience have to fill in the gaps lost to trauma. I focus on that angle because, just as in Walswood Bashir, Hiroshima Amour seeks to unearth the past that has been repressed. René's technique has long been imitated, but in the hands of many other filmmakers, presenting memories in piecemeal fashion deforms the narrative into a quasi-detective mystery, polluting our sympathy with voyeurism. There, we are no longer interested in the therapeutic qualities, but instead, wait around for the shock value of the final revelation. The trauma, in this case genocide, Is reduced to nothing more than Hitchcock's MacGuffin. Yes, Orson Welles used a similar structure in Citizen Kane, but in the wrong hands the mechanism is the stuff of cheap melodrama, B-grade horrors and almost every Tim Burton film. Fulman separates his film from almost all others about trauma by using animation. The format immediately distances us from the events being recalled, while also underlying the unreliability of the memories that have been repressed. The difficulty that Fulman experiences in trying to unearth what happened is, time and again, situated in the difficulty of putting it into words. And without words, it is impossible to properly bear witness to what happened. Finally, Only after he manages to speak of it, does the film abandon the animation format and shift into television footage of the massacre's aftermath. (laughs) The survivors lament their murdered parents, siblings and children, friends and neighbours. After 90 minutes of animated imagery, some of it hallucinogenic, it is viscerally shocking to see such anguish etched on the human face. Fulman then shows us the remains covered in dust, but he knows that the television footage of the dead is too much, so he takes away the sound and leaves the silence to speak. If, as the American cognitive scientist Daniel Degas suggests, language is a virus, What does the virus do to the truth? No words can accurately, completely, unobjectively express what we see. Neither can music. Only silence can.